So we just started a new sermon series on the topic of why we face trials. Going through the Old Testament book of Job in five weeks. And last week, in chapters 1 and 2, we learned that Job, who is Job? Job was the most righteous man in all the world, and God had blessed him with a beautiful family and vast wealth. And what happens in chapters 1 and 2 is God asks Satan to notice how righteous and godly Job is. God asks Satan, notice Job. Now, you might think that God is using Job here in what happens, or that Job is like a pawn being manipulated by God in some way. That is not the case at all. The fact that God says that Job was righteous shows that Job was trusting in what God would do through the Messiah who would be coming, Jesus. Job's sins had all been forgiven through trusting what God would do. Job had received the power of the Holy Spirit changing him. That's why he was called righteous. In other words, Job had been saved by God through Jesus. And so he was loved by God and cared for by God. And like with every believer, God had promised, I will not turn away from doing you good. Jeremiah 32. Even in these chapters, God did not turn away from doing him good. So why does God point Job out to Satan? It's because God is giving Job the joy and the honor of displaying God's ultimate infinite worth, displaying God's worth to Satan, to all the angels, and to everyone who reads this book. Here's how that works. Satan is sure. He knows. He's so blinded by his pride. He He knows the only reason Job could love God the way he does is because of what God has given him. It's all the stuff God's given him. That's why Job loves God so much. Satan believes that if if God would just let Satan take away Job's children, take away Job's wealth, take away Job's health, surely Job would curse God to his face. Surely then God would be nothing to Job at that point. Satan is sure. So God gives permission to Satan. And what happens? The Sabaeans steal all of Job's oxen, killing his servants. Lightning destroys Job's sheep, killing the servants, caring for the sheep. The Chaldeans steal Job's camels and all the servants caring for the camels. A massive windstorm comes and kills all of Job's children. And then Job himself afflicts, sorry, Satan himself afflicts Job with boils, infections erupting all over his body from head to toe, excruciatingly painful. And what did Job do? Job wept and grieved and mourned. Right? Absolutely. And... Job fell to the ground and worshipped God. He worshipped. Through tears, through sobbing, he worshipped. Because he knew God was his treasure. 
He knew the joy he had in knowing God. He knew that because he had God, he had everything because God was everything to him. And so with everything else gone, he had God. And he worshipped God, his treasure, his portion, his prize. That's what we've seen so far in Job, chapters 1 and 2. So here's a picture of what we've seen so far. We're going to do some arcs tonight so you get the big picture. Job chapter 1 and 2, God brings massive trials to Job. So we covered last week. So what happens next? Well, as we just read, as Kristen read to us, Job's three friends hear about his suffering. They live far away from Job, and it seems far away from each other since they all have different ethnic backgrounds. And so they communicate, make the journey, and arrive. And when they get there, they cannot recognize Job, probably because he is so disfigured by these boils that are all over him, just horrifying the way he's suffering. And when they see him, they break out with loud weeping. They tear their robes. They throw dust up in the air to have it come down upon them. And then they sit with Job silently for seven days, mourning with him, grieving with him. And then, after seven days of silent grieving, Job speaks. All of Job 3 is what Job says. And what we read in Job 3, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, it's clear that Job is struggling. He is really struggling. Understand, a lot of time has gone by since these trials first hit. Look at what we read in Job chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. This verse makes it sound like it must have taken months for his friends to get there. Look at verses 2 and 3. Job says, Like a slave who longs for the shadow. Somebody's a slave working hard. They're seeing the shadow. It means the day is getting on. It's almost time for them to stop longing for them to be able to stop working. Like a hired hand who looks for his wages, longing to get paid, waiting, longing. So, Job says, I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. So, Job has had months living with this loss and this excruciating pain. And he is struggling. And what he's struggling with is whether there is any meaning or purpose in his suffering. The author of Job devotes all of chapter 3 to what Job says, his crying out with his questions. Is there any meaning? Is there any purpose, any reason I'm suffering in this way. And the reason the author gives all of chapter 3 to this is he knows this is a question we're all going to have at this point or at some point in our lives. He wants all of us tonight to wrestle with this question. Is there any meaning or purpose to the suffering that believers go through? Let's raise that as our first question. Is there any meaning or purpose to Job's suffering? And look at how Job struggles with this. It's shocking Start with chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Job 3, verses 1 through 3. After this, Job opened his mouth. After seven days of silence with his friends, after this, Job opened his mouth 
and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. If you read the whole chapter, that's what the whole chapter is about. It would have been better if I was never born, wouldn't it? See, that's what he's saying. If you curse the day on which you're born, you're saying it would have been better if you were never born. I mean, Job looks at his life now with all that he's lost and all that he is suffering and all the pain that he's going through. And he's asking, is there any meaning to this? Is there any purpose to this? I'm not seeing it. And if I'm not seeing it, it would have been better if I would never have lived. He's really struggling, right? Now remember, Job is a believer. His faith in chapters 1 and 2 is like a mountain. And it has shrunk down to like a pebble right now, right? He is struggling. Believers struggle. But he's a believer. So what chapter 3 is all about is the question of what is the meaning and purpose of the trials that believers go through? That's what the author wants us to focus on. That's what he wants to teach us in the book of Job. So here's a picture of what we've seen up through chapter 3 then. Chapter 1 and 2. Remember, God brings massive trials to righteous Job, chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, Job struggles with whether his trials have any meaning or purpose. I would guess many of you have raised that question as you've had trials and suffering come upon you. Why? What's the point? Is there any purpose to this? Crucial question. And in the next 28 chapters, the next 28, I counted them, 28 chapters, Job's friends give their answer to that question. So let's ask, how do Job's friends answer this question? 28 chapters worth. Now, before we look at what they say, this is so important, I want to show you why we can know for sure that what they answer is wrong, completely wrong. Please, nobody read these verses and think this is the truth because it's in the Bible. The Bible's quoting some wrong people so we can show how that's wrong, okay? And we know it's wrong because of what God says in the last chapter of the book of Job. Look at Job chapter 42, verse 7. Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, he was like the leader of the three, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So let's be clear, nobody missed this, what Job's friends say in the next 28 chapters, let me just ask you, is it right or is it wrong? My wife got it. <laughs> church, Grace Church, help me out here. Is it right or wrong? Please, nobody get this wrong, because that would be a disaster. So what is it that they say? What is their answer? Let me summarize it, and I'll show you some examples. What they say is that in this life, God always prospers the righteous. He prospers the righteous, Job. 
and brings trials to the wicked. In this life, God always prospers the righteous and brings trials to the wicked. That's what they believe. That's their view of the world, and that's wrong. That does not happen in this life. That is what happens in the life to come, let's be clear. In the life to come, all those who are trusting Jesus Christ, or in the Old Testament, we're trusting what God would do through the Messiah, they've all been forgiven for their sins through Jesus' death on the cross. They're forgiven. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So when they die, they will go to heaven where there is no punishment, no trials, no suffering, no pain, no afflictions, all joy overflowing in the presence of God through Jesus. So yes, in the life to come, God will only bring blessing to those who've been trusting Christ and also, tragically, in the life to come, those who have not trusted Christ, whose sins, therefore, are not forgiven, their guilt is still on them, they will be punished horribly forever. So that's the life to come. There's a difference here. That's the life to come. But Job's friends are talking about this life, this life now. They're saying that in this life, God always prospers the righteous and brings afflictions to the wicked. So the fact that Job is experiencing afflictions must mean there's some wickedness in you, Job. Because God afflicts the wicked. He doesn't afflict the righteous. He afflicts the wicked. You're being afflicted. You must be wicked. Job, fess up. What's the hidden sin you've got? That's what the friends are saying for 28 chapters. Are they right or are they wrong? Thank you. Dead wrong. Let me give you an example of where they say this. Here's what Eliphaz says in Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Job 4, 7 and 8, he's saying to Job, remember Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. He's saying, Job, God never lets the innocent suffer. God never lets the upright face difficulties. In this life, God protects the innocent and the upright from all trials and suffering. That's what Eliphaz is saying here. So Job, if God does allow trials and suffering to come someone, they're not innocent. They're not upright. You're suffering, Job. Must be sin in you, hidden sin. So just confess it. Let's get this over with. Let's picture Eliphaz just saying this to Job. He's saying, Job, God never brings suffering to those who are innocent. So you must be guilty. That's the purpose for your suffering. He's punishing your sin. That's their answer as to what is the meaning of suffering for believers. It's God's punishment against their sin. So they're telling him he's got to repent. Look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Look at what Zophar says. He's calling Job to repent. Chapter 11, 14 and 15. Job, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Don't let injustice dwell in your tents. Clean it up. Clean up your act. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. No more boils. You'll be secure. 
You'll not fear. In other words, Job, stop sinning and your boils will disappear. So do you see their view of the world here? That's what Job's friends are saying through these chapters. So here's the picture of what we've seen so far, going from chapter 1 through chapter 31. Chapters 1 and 2, God brings massive trials to righteous Job. Chapter 3, Job struggles with whether his trials have any meaning or purpose. And in chapters 4 through 31, Job's friends say that their purpose must be to punish Job's hidden sins. There's a lot more going on in those chapters, but that's the main thrust, the main point. And again, it's clear that we know. We know that they're, they're, the friends are wrong in what they're saying for two reasons. One is, we just saw this earlier, God at the very end of the book tells Eliphaz that he and his two friends are wrong. And the other reason is, chapters 1 and 2, Job's the most righteous man in the whole world, and God brings massive trials upon him. So just understand, these friends have a wrong view of the world. They have a wrong view of how God is operating in the world. It is completely wrong. They think God always prospers the righteous, and he afflicts the wicked, not the righteous. He's prosperity to the righteous and afflictions to the wicked. They think that that's how it works in their worldview. And therefore, since Job is being afflicted, he's sinning, obviously. They're sure of this, but that is completely wrong. See, I would guess that some of you, because of your background, you maybe have been taught something along those lines that God always prospers the righteous and afflictions are for the wicked. And you may have been, have been taught that. Maybe, for example, you've been taught that God never brings trials to believers. It's always Satan who brings trials to believers. And if God allows that, it's because the believers have sinned. Maybe that's a version of what you were taught. It's not true. Maybe you were taught that Jesus came to give life and that abundantly, and you were taught that what abundant life means is no trials, no suffering. Walk close to God, you won't have any suffering in your life, just prosperity. So if you are suffering, well, that's because of your sin. He's punishing your sin. So if, if that's your background, then you're, you're probably struggling with what you're hearing tonight, okay? And... I don't want you to struggle, but I understand that change your thinking can be difficult. It can be painful at times, but I would just encourage you along these lines. You open up the scriptures and study this question for yourself. What's authoritative here is not me. What's authoritative is the word of God. My job, the job of those who preach here is to open up the scriptures to you and say, look, you study this. Isn't that what this is saying? So that you can see for yourself. That's what's important. The Bible is the authority. And so what I want to do the rest of our time tonight is show you some scriptures which will additionally show why Job's friends are wrong so that you can be clear in what is going on when trials come to believers. Oh, church, we need to be clear on this. Trials are hard enough without being wrong as to what it's all about. 
right? Even when you know what it's about, it's hard, right? But it's doubly harder, triply harder if we think we're being punished or if we think God's not in control at all, things are just kind of crazy chaos around here. Not the case. Not the case. So let's ask this question. Why were Job's friends wrong? What does the Bible say, the rest of the Bible? Why were Job's friends wrong? We know that God says they're wrong. The last chapter of Job, you've already read that. But let's look at some more reasons. So let me give you two reasons and then some scriptures to back those up. First reason, the Bible teaches that God brings many trials to the righteous. That might just be a shocking statement to some of you. That may change your whole worldview and if it does, then it needs to be changed. So let's take a look. Show me, Pastor Steve. Okay, I will. We've already seen it in Job 1 and 2. Does God bring trials, huge trials to the righteous? No doubt. No doubt. Didn't Satan do it? Yes, he did. Remember what Job said? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. God's in sovereign control of Satan. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And then the, the author says, in saying that the Lord took away, Job did not say anything wrong. It's amazing. Let me show you another scripture. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Very powerful scripture here. Philippians 1, 29. Here's what Paul writes. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now you read that again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now that word granted has the word grace, the Greek word grace at its root. So the idea is graciously granted, lovingly granted. So in this verse, Paul says that God has graciously and lovingly granted every believer here two things. One, to believe in Christ. It's a gift from God. He changed your heart. He gave you faith. It's a gracious gift. Thank you, Lord, for that gift. That's one. He gave you to believe in Christ. But then the other gracious, loving gift he gave you is to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that doesn't just mean persecution. It does include that, but the way Paul talks about suffering for Christ's sake in Romans 8 means all sufferings that we face in this life. God has graciously granted that we suffer. Now, don't, don't miss how huge this is. I mean, this, this is a massive truth here. Tonight, there are godly, faithful Christians who are in prison because of their faith. There's Christians who are battling cancer tonight. There's brothers and sisters who've lost their jobs, maybe some of you. There's believers who are not able to get pregnant. There's believers who are struggling in their marriages. And the list just goes on and on. We're, we're, we're talking about heartbreaking trials here that our brothers and sisters here have. And of course, we should pray, pray for God to deliver them from these trials. Yes, we know that God graciously grants trials. He also wants us to pray that he'll deliver them. That's a very appropriate thing to do. So we should pray 
that God will free them from prison or heal their cancer or enable them to get pregnant or provide a new job or restore their marriage. We should pray and pray and pray and pray for God to deliver our brothers and sisters. And often, in great love, He does. He does. We've experienced that. It's all through the Scriptures. Often, He does. But there will also be times when God, in His love, does not deliver them. There will also be times when God, in His love, will not deliver them. Allows the trials to remain. How do we know that's love? It's because this is what God has graciously granted. Graciously granted. So I'm trying to make the point that the Bible teaches that God brings many trials to the righteous. Here's one verse. Let me give you one more. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. Paul has planted a number of churches. Now he wants to go back and visit each of those churches. And Luke tells us what he preached when he went back and visited those churches. Luke gives us a one-sentence summary of Paul's sermon that he preached in each of those churches. Acts 14, 21, start there. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, here's the one, word, one sentence summary, here's Paul's sermon, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That was a summary of his sermon. Brothers and sisters, you may not know this, but we're all on the way to, to heaven and it's through many tribulations that we go to heaven, which means we shouldn't be surprised. It's like, why is tribulations happening? Because you're on the road to heaven. You must be on the right road. We should not be surprised when trials come. Oh, it's so hard when believers don't understand. It's like, why is this happening to me? We want to come alongside and open up scriptures and say, let me show you why. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says here. Many tribulations. We should not say, I thought God loved me. He does love you. You're on the road to heaven. And in his love, he has had that road take you through many tribulations. We'll see why in a moment. The benefits that come to you in a moment. So it's not the case that in this life, the upright will only have blessings. Do you see that? It's not the case that in this life, God only brings blessings and, and never any tribulations to believers. No, He brings many tribulations. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Second reason that the friends are wrong is that the purpose of every trial is to bring us more of God's presence as we seek Him. It's not automatic, just going through a trial automatically, I'm going to have more of God's presence. We've got to be seeking Him. But as we seek Him, outpourings of His presence. Let me give you Romans 5, verses 3 and 4 to see this. Here's what Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice 
in our sufferings. Now just pause there. This joy, it, it very well could be through tears, right? Through tears, absolutely. But it will be joy. It'll be real joy, which shows that it, it can't mean God's punishing your trials, because if it's punishment, then you won't rejoice your trials. You'll be repenting as you go through trials, right? But no, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Here's why. He tells us why. Knowing that, do you know this? Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. That is, we will be filled with the joy, the certainty, the confidence, the reality of heaven in our hearts. It will fill our souls. As we're seeking Him through those trials, trials will produce endurance. Endurance will refine our character. And refined character is going to fill our hearts with a greater sense of the reality, the beauty, the certainty, the joy of heaven, a taste of heaven filling your heart, giving you even more hope in heaven, more of God's presence bringing that about. So when we experience suffering, we, we shouldn't say, why is this happening? Paul would say it's because trials produce endurance and endurance refines character and character is going to fill you with the hope of heaven. That's why. And that is the most precious gift there is. That gift overshadows any loss we will ever have in this life. No, more of God's presence filling our hearts with the hope of heaven now. Powerful. Look also at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. So we're looking at why Job's friends are wrong. One reason is because God brings many trials to the righteous. And the second reason is because the purpose of every trial is, is not to punish us, it's to bring us more of God's presence as we seek Him. And we see this here in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We're not sure what it is. But it was a messenger from Satan, Paul says, and it grievously afflicted him, caused him great difficulty, and he longed to be freed from this. He prayed three times, and the word for prayer here in 2 Corinthians 12 is earnest prayer. Father, remove this from me. Jesus, please, you have all authority over Satan. You can remove this like this. Please take this away from me. Three times Paul earnestly is laboring in prayer. And Paul was a righteous man. He was full of faith, believing God. But Jesus lovingly said, No, Paul, this one's going to stay. And then Jesus tells him why. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul concludes from that. Therefore, this is Paul talking now. That's what Jesus just said. This is Paul talking. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. This messenger from Satan, this thorn in the flesh, I will boast gladly this. Yes! More of Jesus, more of his grace, 
More of his power, more of his presence? Yes. That's what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, so I can know more of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak in all these trials, I am strong in the presence of Christ being poured out upon me. Jesus tells Paul that he's going to give Paul a greater experience of his grace, his power, and his presence. And because there's nothing like Jesus' grace, power, presence, Paul boasts gladly in that thorn in the flesh. So the Bible does not teach, I hope you're seeing this, it does not teach that God always blesses the righteous and brings trials to the wicked. Isn't it clear the Bible teaches, Psalm 73, we'll see this in more of Job, God often allows the wicked to prosper, doesn't he? <laughs> Look around, right? God, I mean... How many sports stars are Christians? Some are, praise God, but I mean, not the majority. Prospering. How many movie stars? So on and so forth. And Psalm 73 says it very clearly as well as many scriptures. In this life, God does allow, often allows the wicked to prosper. And of course, in this life, God often blesses the righteous greatly as well. He does that. He does that. But in this life, in his love, God brings many trials to the righteous. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Every believer, everyone. Because as we seek him, these trials are going to bring us more of God's presence. Believers, will we have any trials in heaven? No, no, no more. It's like Josh preached a few weeks ago. But we will have many afflictions now. Many afflictions now. I was just thinking, there's probably lots of reasons, but I thought of at least two reasons why this is so important that we understand. So important that we understand this. One is, this will keep us from being confused when trials come. God brings trials to the righteous. So because you're trusting Jesus... Trials are not punishing you for your sin. Remember, your sins were all punished already in Jesus 2,000 years ago. All the punishment for your sins has been paid already. Past sins, present sins, future sins. All of it's been punished. There is not a speck of punishment in your future anywhere. Never will God punish you. He poured it all out upon His Son, Jesus, for you. So no punishment. Don't be confused when trials come. That's one reason. We won't be confused. We'll understand there's, this is not punishment. More of God's presence is coming to me as I press in. This is why he's graciously granted this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to trust you for this, but I see it. Help me to believe you. We fight, right? It's not easy. Through tears. But, oh, he meets us. Second reason this is important is this will keep our hearts set on Christ. Here's what I mean. We don't obey 
and pray and seek God so we can avoid trials and get the promotion or get the healing. That's not why we obey and pray and seek God. We obey and pray and seek God because we want to get more of God. And understanding trials in this way will make that very clear to us. He is what this is all about. So understand, God brings trials to the righteous. Oh, He will sustain you through the trial. He will give you grace through that trial. He will comfort you through that trial. He will give you wisdom through that trial. He will meet all of your needs through that trial. He will help you through that trial. You will not be alone in that trial. He'll be carrying you through that trial. But you'll go through the trial. He brings trials to the righteous. And the purpose of every trial is to bring us more of God's presence as we seek Him. That's the purpose. Let me close with an example, illustration. Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to inland China. And tragically, while he was there, his wife of 12 years became sick and died. God brought a massive trial to Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a righteous man. He believed God. He was full of faith. And God had his wife die, took his wife home after they'd been married for 12 years. And he grieved. He wept. But listen to how the Lord met him. Listen to how the Lord sustained him. Remember, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He was not surprised that this trial came. He was surprised. He wasn't expecting it. But he wasn't saying, why am I facing any trials? He understood what the Bible taught. But listen to how the Lord met him, sustained him, blessed him. Here's what he wrote to a friend about this. He said, only Jesus knows what her absence is to me. And no one else could possibly understand what a huge ache is in my heart to have her not be here. But Jesus, my Jesus, he knows. He knows. Only Jesus knows what her absence is to me. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship, united labor, mutual satisfaction, and love fall to the lot of very few. We had an amazing marriage. God had blessed me with an amazing wife. This is what he's writing to his friend. But never does he leave me. Constantly does he cheer me with his love. Outpourings of his love. He who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps in me and with me. This is amazing. Get that. He who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps. Jesus is weeping in me. He's so close. He's weeping with me. He cares about me. He's weeping with me. He's weeping in me. And then this last line, amazing. Often I find myself wondering 
whether it is possible for her who is taken, my wife who is taken, to have more joy in his presence than he has given me. This is what he experienced. He writes this letter to his friend. This is quite dramatic. Okay, I, I get it. It's like, whoa. But I want you to understand what the Bible means when it talks about the gift of God's all-satisfying presence. It's reality. This is what Hudson Taylor experienced. So notice how he's sensing the presence of Jesus. Jesus is cheering him with his love. Jesus is weeping in him and with him. Jesus is there. He's sustaining him. And along with the weeping, Hudson Taylor was weeping through this whole process, but along with the weeping, Jesus gives him so much joy that he wonders if his wife, who is in heaven, in heaven, is having as much joy in Jesus' presence as he is there on earth. This is an astounding picture, but a beautiful picture of what Paul is talking about when he says, when Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what's going on here. Jesus is sustaining his beloved Hudson Taylor. He's blessing Hudson Taylor. So it's so important that we understand God brings many trials to those he loves. Don't ever say, I thought God loved me. He loves you. God brings many trials to those he loves. And his purpose is so that as we seek him through those trials, he's going to bring us even more of his sweet, real, kind, loving, strengthening, comforting presence. That's what he will do. If these are new thoughts for you, just go home, open up your Bible. Lord, I don't like this. Teach me your word. Show me. Send me emails. Let's talk. Raise your questions. But it is so important that you be clear on what is happening when you face many afflictions on the way to the kingdom of God. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. I am sure, Father, that these are hard words for some here to listen to. It does not sound like good news at first. But, oh Lord, would you teach us your word? Would you help us? Lord, for those here now who are going through deep waters of difficulty, Lord, sustain them, comfort them, help us to open our arms to them and come alongside them and pray with them and listen to them and weep with them. Oh, Lord, the road to heaven is a road marked with many afflictions. Make Grace Church a church where people who are suffering are welcomed and loved and cared for and encouraged. And, Lord, strengthen all of us to understand your love for us in trials and to set our hearts on heaven where there will be no more weeping, no more pain, no more trials, just you and your glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.